Well, we're in a series called There Is More. And we have been uh, learning these past few weeks of June that the reason Jesus repeatedly emphasized to that first circle of 120 Christians gathered in a little cluster in a little room in Jerusalem, Jesus kept saying to them over and over again, don't leave Jerusalem to begin the mission of taking the message of Jesus to the nations until you have been, and then Jesus used several words to capture this, been baptized in, immersed in, until you've been clothed with and filled with the Holy Spirit. Because they would face people with deeply entrenched worldviews, religions, belief systems, with centuries of layers of tradition and ritual woven into the very fabric of family, social, educational, even economic structures of the day. And so taking the message of Jesus would, could not be a mere human effort. Logic, oratory, human methods, no matter how sincere, simply would not break through those belief systems. Uh, you know, for, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, for 40, I moved to Chicago around 40 years ago, and I pretty quickly became a Cubs fan. I told you that a couple weeks ago. And so for 40 years, I have been trying to win one convert <laughs> that would leave the socks and embrace the Cubs, would come to the light, you know, would understand, you know, what's, I hope you Sox fans are okay with that. I'm joking, okay? <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> But anyway, I'm just making a point. It's hard for someone to embrace a new belief. And, uh, and so that's what we face. That's what Paul faced. We're going to talk about him in just a moment. But it would take far more convincing, persuasive power than the greatest orator in the world would have to convince people to embrace Jesus Christ. It takes more power than that. That's why we're calling this There Is More. And one of the greatest examples of this is when uh, the missionary, great apostle Paul, he entered into the city of Corinth. There should be a map up here to give you a little bit of a picture of where Corinth is, one of those Greek cities. A little bit about the city. Uh, it was a very, very prominent, thriving city in Paul's day. It was, the inland, it was on the inland, inland, inland trade route between Rome and Asia. It was an international city with a lot of traffic. And uh, one scholar that I read described ancient Corinth this way. It was like New York with its economic prowess and Los Angeles with all of its thriving artists and Las Vegas with its reputation as Sin City and Party City. If you took all three of those cities and you merged them into one, you have ancient Corinth. Now, I thought when I read that, you know, it wouldn't hurt to toss in Chicago. What is Chicago's reputation? Right. You serve in your office, and then you go directly to jail, right? Okay, that's, that's the way it works in Chicago. So I'm, there was that kind of stuff happening in Corinth, too. All right, so that gives you a little bit of picture. Now, there were four classes, four different classes of people in the structure of that city. There were the aristocracy. There were the wealthy people. And then they, that wealthy group attracted 
a second group of people. They attracted artists because in those days, artists found their support by finding a rich patron who would sort of support them in their artistic endeavors. So there were a lot of artists in the city. Thirdly, Rome had wanted to trim its population. So what they did was they set thousands of slaves free. And a lot of those slaves went to the city of Corinth because there was a lot of opportunity there. And so a lot of the trades that came into that city were former slaves that had a new opportunity. So the city was thriving. Now, those first three groups were all Roman and Greek people. Then there was a fourth group of people there. There was a pretty decent Jewish population in the city of Corinth, too. So there was both ethnic and class barriers. But underneath all of that, there was a glue that sort of held this city together. It was a very religious city. 26 different temples, worship, places of worship, uh, to the Greek pantheon of gods and goddesses have been excavated by archaeologists. And there may have been more than that. Uh, the greatest of these gods, goddesses, I should say, was Aphrodite, whose temple stood on a hill overlooking the city. Everybody could look up to that hill and, and see the goddess Aphrodite and her temple overlooking the city. She was the protector of the city and had been for centuries. Now, the problem with Aphrodite was she led to an extremely sexualized culture, which is what the city of Corinth was. And it really was like Las Vegas. That's not a misnomer at all. Because the worship of Aphrodite included men and women, even boys and girls slaves, who were being trafficked, sexually trafficked, and forced to provide sex as part of the worship experience when people came to worship Aphrodite. So this was a city that was entrenched in false beliefs that were dehumanizing and, and filled the city with all kinds of abuse. And, and Corinth was a broken, broken city. And if there was ever a city that was, it would have been impossible to think you could walk in with the message of Jesus and have any possibility of even making a dent in that city, Corinth was like that. And you know, Paul was really aware of that. His first time into that city, which was in AD 49-50, because later in his letter back to them, three, three and a half years later, this is what Paul, how Paul describes how he felt when he walked into that city. I read this last week, I think. But listen to it again. So it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence of human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to, to know nothing while I was with you except one thing, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I'm going to go in there, and the only thing I'm going to talk about is Jesus died on the cross for your sins to set everybody in this city free from this horrible, destructive lifestyle so they can have a new life and be forgiven and guilt wiped away. That's what Paul went in there. That's, that's the only thing I'm going to talk about when I get into that city. But then Paul says in verse 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Even the apostle Paul, when he thought about this city, he had those weak moments when he thought, this, this is an impossible task. But listen to where he ends up in verse number 4. 
My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, not human wisdom. Here's how it came. But with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So Paul is demonstrating again what we've seen all through the early church, that first century church, everything that Luke kept emphasizing in that book of Acts we just finished was this. As followers of Jesus went outward in witness, the Holy Spirit would show up with his mighty gifts to demonstrate that Jesus is resurrected and that he is real. Now, you know, there, the Holy Spirit has been, um, as a third person of the Trinity, Equal with God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit for all of eternity has had one joyous, glorious purpose. And that is to throw a spotlight on Jesus, to, to exalt Jesus Christ. He's been doing that for all of eternity. And now the amazing thing is that that same Holy Spirit has come into the church. He's been poured out upon church congregations like you and me with that same eternal passion so that it will burn and flame inside of us for our world. And what is it the Holy Spirit wants our world to know more than anything else? It's what Paul said, that Jesus was crucified, but it didn't end there. He was resurrected on the third day. The Holy Spirit wants your neighbors down the street. He wants every person in Lamont and Lockport and, and Homer. He wants every person to know that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And every church that exists within these communities, that is our mission, is to get that word out there. We talked a couple weeks ago about the 70% of the people surrounding our, our churches. They don't know Jesus. They are lost they are in their sins. We're the messengers. And we cannot, we have no convincing power apart from creating an environment in our own hearts and in our church that the spirit of the living God will saturate and pervade and permeate and fill us. And that we'll have that as our lifestyle. Now, John Wesley was once asked, I think I've said this before, he was once asked if he would not like to find and settle down in a nice church in a comfortable, friendly neighborhood, maybe like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. <laughs> Be the pastor of the church in that neighborhood, okay? Well, here's, here was Wesley's reply. Never. I want to plant a church that sits out, just outside the gates of hell. And when that is what's in the heart of believers, that's when the Spirit of God shows up with extraordinary gifts to demonstrate that, that what we're saying about Jesus is really true and will upset and will break apart those false belief systems that hold people captive. Now, let me say a little bit more about this church in the city of Corinth. Like all the churches of the New Testament, they did not meet in great big auditoriums because there weren't any. And the church at that time, they were not into building big buildings because that would have been a distraction for them. So what did they do? They just used houses. So someone came to Christ, your house became the church. 
And so 20, 30, 40, maybe, they'd pack people into that house, into that church. And so in the city of Corinth, there were ch- the church existed in multiple small house churches throughout the city. And Paul stayed for 18 months in that city teaching and training these house church leaders how to help the churches and the people continue to grow in their faith. Now, what would Paul have been teaching them during those 18 months? What what would he have been emphasizing? Well, I think it would be safe to say that we can look at all the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament and we can see this is what he would have been just pouring in to these leaders as he was giving them responsibility for the churches. And uh, so, now, uh, (laughs) you don't have it on the screen this morning, but what I wanted to show you uh, is all written on this list. How many can see this? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now, I hope at least you can see this list has a list of things from top to bottom, top to bottom, okay? Uh, And there is, I've made copies of this that are in the lobby today. Let me me tell you what's on this list. First of all, uh, the works of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to quickly give them to you. The Holy Spirit does this. He convicts of the need for Jesus. He leads to repentance and spiritual rebirth. He comes and indwells believers and gives evidence of God's presence. He adopts us into God's family. And then once inside of our lives, he begins character transformation, forming us into the character of Christ. He also is the one who reveals scripture to us whenever we sit down with God's word, and he reveals and opens up the scripture. He also guides and he counsels us and helps us discern God's will. He also gives us a foretaste of the resurrection, for if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then your mortal bodies are going to experience the life of Jesus even in our mortal bodies. Then uh, he encourages us. He prompts prayer and worship inside of us. And that's just a short list of all the things the Holy Spirit has come into our lives to do. And then there's a second list. In order for us to carry out the mission, and we emphasized this last week, the Holy Spirit has given two different categories of gifts. He's given serving gifts. We went through this last week, and we defined it. I'm just going to run through it again. Things like serving, teaching, encouraging, generosity, mercy, being an evangelist or a missionary. He comes, calls some people and gives some people to be evangelists or pastors. Some people have this gift of helps, which is just doing things behind the scenes that are very practical, or administration and leadership. And there are tons of more gifts that God gives us to serve. They all come from the Holy Spirit. And then there's that third that second list of gifts. And those are the miraculous ones that we talked about last week. Now, if you weren't here last week, you didn't, I went through all these miraculous gifts and we defined them, what they are. I don't have time to do that today. I'll just run, read the list though. The message of the word of wisdom, spontaneous flash of insight that the Holy Spirit gives to help us know what to, to, to take a wise course of action. Then there's the word of knowledge, spontaneously revealed awareness of facts that come straight from the Holy Spirit apart from five senses. There is the gift of faith. In a moment, to believe that God is going to step in and intervene in a miraculous way, which leads into the next gift, the gift of miraculous powers. And then there's the gift of prophecy, spontaneously prompted prompted by the Holy Spirit to share a message of encouragement. The distinguishing between spirits, whether a person speaking out of their own human spirit or a demonic spirit or God's spirit. And then different kinds of tongues or languages. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a minute. And then the interpretation of tongues and languages. Those two gifts go together. Now, you can pick this up at the uh, information desk out there. 
Um, now, so Paul is teaching all of this stuff about the Holy Spirit for those 18 months. And then he leaves, and then for, the, and then, uh, for three and a half, and then three and a half years later, in A.D. 55, word comes back to Paul that problems have risen in the church at Corinth. And some of those problems, there, were, there are 11 problems, and there are 16 chapters, okay? <laughs> so there were some big problems in this church that had just taken root. Uh, I can't mention all those problems, but I'll tell you what one of them was. I'll, I'll tell you two or three of them. One was they, um, well, after Paul left, um, Apollos, who was a great orator, he came through and did some teaching there. And then the Apostle Peter, he came through Corinth, and he did some teaching there too. And so you had these three great teachers, but some of the people, some the fan clubs started to develop in the church. Okay, some people liked the way Paul taught. Now, Paul, he was sort of an intellectual guy, and uh, he was also bald-headed and bowed-legged. So, okay, that didn't help his persona any, probably. But, uh, and then uh, Apollos, now he was this polished orator. He, he had been trained as an orator. He was a great teacher. And then you had Peter. Peter was this bombastic, strong, sort of in-your-face, this is the way it is, etc. And there was people in that congregation, man, some appealed to that, some took on to this. And so they had these clubs inside of the church. And then there was a super spiritual club. They said, well, <laughs> we're Jesus people. <laughs> we believe Jesus. But that was said more out of spiritual pride than anything else. And spiritual pride was a big problem in this church and competition, things like that. Now, another problem was um, when they came together for communion, they were divided so much that, you know, communion in those days, they had a big meal like a potluck. And then at the end of the potluck, they would serve the bread and the, and the uh, juice. But what was happening is their potluck meals, they weren't sharing their food with each other, and they were sitting in little cliques. And some people, Paul says in chapter 11, were even going away hungry, okay? Some of those in that, uh, you know, poverty strata. So that was happening in the church. Another thing was, some of the um, Christians in the church were suing each other and going on off to pagan courts to have it settled, all right? Uh, we could go on a little bit more there, but... This is, Paul addresses that in chapter 3, and he's, this is what he says has happened. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, who are walking with the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. You're still infants in Christ. Here it's been three and a half years, but he says, you're still infants in your faith. You haven't grown. I gave you milk, not solid food, when I first came because you weren't ready for the meat yet, the solid food. And in, indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. You're still, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? People who don't know Christ. That's what was happening. The church was splintered. Now, there was one other major problem, and I want to zero in on this one for a second. One other major problem was involved the gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially that, that miraculous list. Okay, they were really fascinated with that miraculous list of the gifts of the Spirit. And um, so the gifts, but these gifts of the Spirit that were so extraordinary began to be valued by the, the Corinthian Christians as badges of spiritual status to promote 
and advance their own agendas, their, their own spiritual pride. They began to compare and rate how spiritual some of, someone was by how gifted they were. And this led them to abuse and even mimic the gifts of the Spirit and to be led off into all kinds of strange, mystical, crazy, bizarre things happening in their services, which we'll get to in just a second, that were just confusing everybody, but all being done in the name of the moving of the Holy Spirit. Um, now, among all of those gifts on the list of the miraculous gifts, the one that was most, they were most fascinated and captivated by was this gift of tongues, this speaking in unknown languages. Now, as we said last week, Paul for sure includes the gift of speaking in unknown languages, spiritual languages. Paul totally includes that in the gifts of the Spirit. It's a legitimate and it's, it's, it's a valuable gift because it's one of the Holy Spirit's gifts. It's in the package. And when, it's, when it functions in association with the gift of interpretation of tongues, spiritual languages, then it becomes a blessing and a witness to the reality of Jesus. So those two gifts are supposed to operate in sequence. I'll explain this in, a little more clearly in just a second. In fact, you could picture it like this. I want you to picture for a second that you're back there in Corinth and you're in one of those house ch church worship services where there's maybe 15, 20, 30 other people there. And, the, inf and, and the, the, uh, the service structure in those home churches was pretty informal. There was a structure, but it was very relaxed, uh, just like small groups are today. Uh, so, in, verse, in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verse 26, Paul sort of gives us a picture of the format in some of these house churches. This is what he says. He says, what shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you have a hymn. Someone comes in with a hymn. Hey, let's sing this hymn together tonight. Okay, and then he says, some come with a word of instruction. Maybe God has taught you something that week. You want to share it. And then he says, uh, some will come in with a revelation, something that God is just an insight that God has poured into your heart. Maybe, and maybe that revelation was he's referring to a word of wisdom or one of those gifts, the word of knowledge. Maybe that's what he's talking about there. And then he says this, some will come with a, a tongue, an unknown language. And then he adds, or an interpretation of tongues, an interpretation of that unknown language. And then he adds this, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. The word built up means encouraged and edified and strengthened and inspired to carry out the mission. So let me get a little more specific on this. When a person in one of those gatherings was prompted to share uh, during a time of worship a short message in one of those unknown languages, as he was prompted or she was prompted by the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying in chapter 14, it must always, without fail, be followed with the gift of interpretation so that the meaning of what was shared in that spiritual language can, can be a blessing to everybody that's present there. They're not left confused. But what was happening instead in Corinth is that this one gift was isolated 
from all the other gifts, even from the gift of the interpretation of tongues, and it was elevated as the supreme gift of spiritual status. So in the services, the believers would all come not to love and bless and encourage one another, but to compete for spiritual status by showing off their spiritual gifts and trying to get center stage. And so some of these services, everybody in there was showing off their gift of tongues. And it became total confusion. And this is what Paul addresses in verses 23 to 25. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, Will they not say that you are out of your mind? That's a pretty straight statement. But Paul goes on and says, if, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everybody is prophesying, now that's the gift where you're, you're, saying, you're, you're saying things that are encouraging and understandable to everybody present because you're speaking in your own native language. Okay. When that happens in a worship gathering, then the people that are there, even if they're unbelievers, they're convicted of sin. They're brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. And so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, man, God is really present here. He's really in this room. So in one case, you have confusion. And in one case, you have understandability and clarity. Now, um, so let me, Paul is giving to churches a basic principle here. The Holy Spirit wants understandability in our worship gatherings. This is what Paul says in chapter 14, verse 33. For God is not a God of disorder or confusion. He's a God of peace, as in all the congregation of, congregations of the Lord's people. So I think what Paul's saying there is we have to be concerned that what happens in all of our worship gatherings is understandable to everybody who's present, the unbelieving guest, the agnostic, the atheist, the person who has come maybe seeking to check out Christianity or to figure out who Jesus is, and I would include young people who observe and watch us older Christians and how we go about things. Uh, and so so that everybody understand, understand what's, understands what's going on and is drawn in. Uh, one of the things we talk about around here at Calvary is one of the goals we have for our worship gatherings is simplicity with depth. We want everything to be simple, simply stated, so people can pull into it, but we want it to have depth. We're not going to sacrifice depth. And um, so um, I had a call, I had a uh, lunch, this was a few years back, with uh, one of our college professors, uh, and um, he was telling me something, I, I, he, he said to me, you know, uh, a lot of our freshmen coming into our colleges are totally turned off on the gifts of the Spirit. We have to, we have to re-educate them. And why is that? Because in a lot of cases, they're coming out of churches where Paul's advice is not being followed. And some very abusive things happen under the, under the phrase, the moving of the Holy Spirit, that 
But the, the Holy Spirit never moves in a confusing kind of way, is what Paul is saying here. Now, uh, so let's keep going here. Um, here, was, uh, here, was an, here was another way to look at the big mistake that the, the church in Corinth was making. This church came to neglect everything on the list of the works of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and, and zeroed in on the one, one gift at the very end. And so for them, the work of the Holy Spirit, the moving of the Holy Spirit, meant one thing, and it excluded everything else on this list. I think that's a big mistake. Because everything on this list, from the moment we become a Christian, this is the working and the moving of the Holy Spirit. This is the comprehensive work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Uh, so they reduced everything uh, to just a handful and ignored all the rest. And that's the reason why Paul writes back to them three and a half years later and says, man, you guys are still infants in Christ. You haven't grown in your faith. Uh, and uh, so, now... The very same mistake, as I said a moment ago, has been made in our own time. Uh, and the moving of the Spirit. Um, maybe I can try to give a couple of examples here. Um, the, um, there's, a, there's a thought sometimes, there's been a thought sometimes that we don't want to quench the spirit. And so what we interpret that to mean is anything goes, <laughs> okay? Because if we, I don't want to quench the Holy Spirit, okay? But I think God's given us good guidelines on when to, to say, you know what? That may not be quite online. Uh, and so to step up boldly and deal with it. And uh, so, uh, and this can be things that are just out of order. I was in a, you know, uh, not in this church, okay? But in a, in a prior church time, um, we were in the middle of a song service, singing, having a great time, and uh, people were seated during this song. And um, so one individual right down on the front row just decided to stand up. And this song we were singing, uh, had it referred to the dimensions of, you know, northeast, southwest, the compass. <laughs> it's an old song. Maybe that rings a bell with some of you. But this person stood up in the middle of it all and just began to, you know, sort of, point north, south, east, west, and did it as they turned in circles and everything? Okay. Now, I don't doubt the sincere motivation of that person. I don't. However, it became a distraction to everybody else that was in there because all of a sudden, all of our eyes were turned off of Jesus and onto that lady, <laughs> onto that person. Uh, so it's, and if, you, if there was a guest there, someone who'd never been in church before, invited for the first time to come, what did they walk away thinking? Paul's talking about this kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, then, um, and this will, this, will be a, this will be a touchy one right here, but I'm going I'm to address this real quick. Um, we have, in the scriptures, we have three occasions that I know of, and there may be a couple more, when a person was so overcome with the Holy Spirit's presence so completely overcome that they, they literally fell. There was Daniel, there's Ezekiel, and then there's John, uh, John when he received the vision in the book of Revelation. And, I mean, the, the awesome presence of God was so powerful that they just 
they fell in worship and praise. And so I totally believe there's biblical precedence for being overwhelmed by the presence of God and falling in his presence. Yes, that can happen. Uh, and I would imagine if, well, let me say, well, let me go on this way. That Now, I do think, though, there's been an abuse that has grown up around that on occasion. Um, and that, and I remember a few years ago when it seemed that a new litmus test for whether or not God was moving in a worship gathering was you could almost, the litmus test was how many people were, and the phrase is, slain in the spirit in the service. And so if you had a lot of people slain in the spirit, you had a great service, and man, wasn't the Holy Spirit, he was really present in that service, because look, now, I'm going to question that for just a second on the basis of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, okay? First of all, I do not think the scripture teaches that being overwhelmed and having, and, and having a profound emotional response to the Holy Spirit, so much so that you would fall in his presence. I don't believe that is a, is a litmus test uh, for the moving of the Spirit. Because you can be in the same service and you may, have, you may have one person here who's just so overcome with the Holy Spirit that they, fa they fall down in his presence. But you may have a person standing here who's just as deeply and profoundly moved, but they didn't fall down. So what's going on here? Well, I think we're talking about emotional response. And we all have a different emotional, we all have a different emotional makeup when the Spirit of God moves. So we dare not take a, what is a response to the Holy Spirit and confuse it with one of his manifestations. Uh, I think we just have to be careful about that. So, so order in our services and understanding. And, uh, and I do, and I'm going to say this too, I remember in one of those services that... Uh, there was a line of people that wanted to be slain in the spirit. <laughs> okay, so, and I remember one person coming up and getting slain. Oh, man, boom, got up. He got in line again, okay? <laughs> and he went, he got slain again. So now, all right, I just think we need to, we want to invite the spirit of God. And if the spirit of God comes into this place someday so awesomely and powerfully, and I pray he will, and the collective response of us all is, oh, man, we're on our knees. Hey, praise God for that. But you know what? We'll know that when it's real, right, and genuine. Uh, we'll know that. So, all right, now, let me move on here. So, now, here's the other thing. So, we have, you know, in, in the church world today, we have two extremes. We have people that are just gone way off, way off the track in terms of, you know, confusing what the moving of the Holy Spirit is and his gifts. But on the, far over the other stream, we have some branches of Christianity that just think, man, we shouldn't even ever expect any of these gifts. Those things faded out with the apostles. They aren't for the church today. I, I don't think the apostle Paul would agree with that at all. These gifts were given to the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, well, let me read it right now, okay? This is what Paul, let me, well, let me say it this way. What enabled, when Paul went into Corinth, the only way that city was won was because 
part of the gifts of those spirit, part of the gifts of the spirit is, includes that miraculous list. If he hadn't had that going for him, that city could not have been one to Christ. It could not have been. Uh, and we live in a, a nation right now that is very similar to Corinth. And if we think that we are going to have an impact on, this un, uh, on our world around us without the demonstrated power and gifts of the Holy Spirit, everything the Holy Spirit has to give, we're fooling ourselves. We need every gift of the Spirit functioning today, but functioning in beauty and order and not in confusion. So Paul wrote this to the, to the church in Corinth, and he said this in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Uh, let me read this. This is what keeps the gifts of the Spirit grounded and functioning with order and beauty. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels. In other words, what's, what's the very first one that Paul, a gift of the Spirit Paul addresses here? It's that gift of tongues that they were abusing so much. And Paul says, if I speak in the gift of tongues of men or angels, but if I don't have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And then he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries, and then he says, and all knowledge. There's, the, there's that gift of the word of knowledge. And if I have faith, the gift of faith, to just instantly believe that a mountain can be moved. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm a zero. And then he says, if I give all I possess to the poor, and I give my body over to hardship so that I can boast. But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. And then he says, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of grudges and wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, it rejoices in truth, and it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes. It always perseveres. And then Paul finishes this chapter and says, you know, there's going to come a day when all these gifts of the Spirit, as marvelous as they are, they're going to disappear. We, don't, we won't need them anymore. When is that? It's when that which is complete has come. What is that which is complete? It's on the day of the resurrection, on the day when Jesus Christ comes again and the mission of the church is complete. We don't need those gifts anymore. But we are going to need them all the way up till that day. But they must function in line with the mission of the church, which is what? Loving people like Jesus loves people and being an outward-focused church that is moving into our community with that love to share the gospel. Then the mighty gifts and signs and wonders of the Spirit are going to show up and support the words that we're sharing, the testimony that we're giving. So, um, say it this way, and now i got to wrap this up. The point is this. That if the gifts of the Spirit, either the serving gifts or miraculous gifts, are not anchored in spiritual maturity, which Paul measures in one way only, loving people like Jesus loves people. That for Paul was what spiritual maturity is. Then if we don't have that, then no matter what gifts we may have, if we don't have love anchoring them, we're going to end up back in Corinth. We're going to end up there. We're going to end up abusing the gifts of the Spirit for promoting and advancing ourselves 
instead of promoting and advancing Jesus with one another and outside the walls of our church and being the missionaries that God has called us to be. So, I want to end it this way, with a couple what-ifs. Okay. What if the church in the United States would get this right? What if, what could happen? Mighty gifts of the Spirit anchored in a sense of mission, the passion of the Holy Spirit, loving people and wanting to reach our broken world. And we went out there. What could happen in that combination? I think we could see, I think we can see what happened in Corinth by the power of the Spirit happen in our culture by the power of the Spirit. I, t- I totally believe that. Um, so there's an action step with that. And our part as followers of Jesus is to create in our hearts an environment for the Holy Spirit to fill us and, and, to wa- and to live with that hunger and thirsting for the Holy Spirit, to come back to that as a church. And then the second what if is if you're here today and you're just searching out Christianity, uh, I just want to say to you today that you can experience the truth that Jesus Christ is resurrected. You can experience that today in this room. And because Jesus said, if we will come to him with faith, if we will come repenting of our sin, and we've all blown it, we've all sinned, our sins separate us from God, if we will come confessing our sin to him and saying, Lord, I've blown it, I've sinned, forgive me. Jesus promises that he will come in. His presence will come flooding in to the depths of your being, and you will, you will, have, you will, you will experience his presence. And it will begin to change your life from the inside out. So if you're here today and you've never taken that step, the Holy Spirit is here to to lead you to Jesus today. He would love to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you today that you care about us and you love us. Lord, um, thank you for for giving us uh, your word that helps us uh, sort out how we live this Christian life, how we do it individually, how we do it together as a church. And Lord, so Lord... We are with Paul here. We want every gift of the Spirit. We want every gift of the Spirit to be functioning in our church community, our small groups, our lives, so that, Lord, we are empowered to encourage each other within the walls of the church, and we, are, we have the passion of the Spirit to go to those that are outside with this wonderful message that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He's he, he is our Savior. He is the one who can change our lives. So, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God will so move and so continue to lead us forward as a church family here in all of these things, Lord. And it's for the glory of Jesus Christ that we pray these things, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.